0: Okay, we are live. Beautiful.
1: And Jan, do you have any questions about this show or about our conversation today before we get started?
0: No, I just dive in with 100% trust. Oh, beautiful. And if I don't like something, I'll let you know. But I'm sure I will.
1: Of course, that is important because you get final cut on the content. So I encourage you to go wherever you'd like to go. And if there is anything you'd like edited after the fact, then I'm happy to switch, remove anything that you want. So it's a home game for you. Yeah. Okay. Well, then I think we should just jump on in in full trust, as you've so lovingly stated, which I I really am grateful for, since you've just met me a moment ago. So thank you for your trust.
0: Yeah, but you you came via Ian Mackenzie, so and Ian McKenzie came through. Tad Hargrave, so it's trust all the way. You
1: know, I've actually gotten a lot of great relationships of trust through Ian McKenzie specifically, and I'm grateful okay. to him because he tends to be this wonderful connector of of many different people, and turns out many different storytellers.
0: Okay, excellent, good. Well, I hope I don't oh, I'm,
1: I've 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 listened to your work. No pressure, but I have a feeling you'll be fine. Um, <laughs> okay, and 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 I just for the listener, I want to give a shout out. I'll mention this in the introduction as well, but part of why Jan and I are speaking today is because my dear friend Ian McKenzie, who's been on this show a few times and I've been on his show, we've been good colleagues and friends for a number of years now, um, has organized and convened a storytelling gathering, a gathering of stories that will be taking place in February and Jan is one of Europe's most sought after storytellers and will be one of the speakers at that event. And so I was checking in with Ian, I was like this event seems really cool. I wonder how I can, you know, let my audience best know about it. And he was like, "Why don't you speak to Jan cuz she's this awesome storyteller and let's see the overlap." And I've just had such a such a pleasure getting familiar with your work and getting actually getting reconnected to my own love of storytelling, literally just in prepping for this interview. So I already feel like I, I kind of leveled up on this one. Okay,
0: great. Glad to meet you. And uh, yeah, looking forward to chatting. Beautiful.
1: Well, Jan Blake, welcome to Life is a Festival. And th- on this program, we talk about <clears throat> living our lives in the open-hearted expressed way of a festival, how to live more in the moment and in a more connected way. And sometimes we talk about festivals. I know that as a storyteller there's an entire circuit of storytelling festivals that you've participated in, including being the storyteller in residence at the Hay Literary Festival as well as participating in the World Shakespeare Festival. And uh, you'll be at the festival at the Edge later this year, although I believe that will be remote, but you'll still be there. Um, so you're very involved in the sort of storyteller festival world. And also. also. So you are a master of stories and I wonder what wisdom will bubble up out of the world of myth and poetry on our conversation today.
0: Yeah, I I hesitate to call myself a master of stories because I don't have a very academic approach to what I do. I basically find stories I love to tell and I tell them. That's about it. And I do have a library of stories here. And I guess I, I have a deep relationship with stories, but I hesitate to call myself a master of stories. Maybe
1: I can now call myself a master of storytelling. Mm. Let's, let's go with that. What would make someone a master of storytelling? Like, for example, if I, who love to tell stories, albeit typically about myself, but who love to tell stories, <laughs> who love storytelling, what, what would it take for me to become a master of storytelling?
0: I think it's about realizing that stories are really an opportunity to reflect on what it means to be human. I mean, I've been storytelling, this is my 35th year of being a storyteller. So I think I've become uh, a master in storytelling through, as you say, living life like a festival, living an open or trying to at least live an open hearted way and being present in my daily environment, not just in my art form. I guess the best way to say it is, you know, I've met people along the way. I've met, I've met cab drivers and nurses and, and uh, people who run dry cleaners, et cetera, et cetera. And, and they're master storytellers because they just, they just have a way of being in the world that is so present, so open, so connected with people and what it means to be human, and what it means to be authentic. And there's no side to them. They're not trying to do anything. They're not trying to be anything. They do their job as a taxi driver or nurse or, or dry cleaner, whatever it is. Well, there's just something. They've got this mercurial something that just makes you want to listen to them. So I would say being able to to get close to that within yourself, being able to get close to that authenticity within yourself, and also putting yourself uh, in service of the story that you want to tell, rather than coming to a story with your preconceived idea of what this story should mean to the listener. What I think it takes is to surrender to what the story is asking of you And your authenticity together, obviously with a smattering of sensory connection. And also the recognition that the people in the story, I used to call them characters, but I realized specifically over the last year or two that they're not characters, they're people that we re-enliven when we tell the stories. And the audience needs to be able to recognize themselves in you, the teller, and in the people in the stories. And I think being able to get close to that, being able to connect to that, is one of the ways to become a master storyteller,
1: I think. You know, the piece that keeps coming up in everything you've just said is connection. You know, connecting with the people in the story, Mm -hmm. connecting with the audience, and I think also connecting with yourself, with your own authenticity, the way that the story moves you. Because, of course, you can't move another unless you've surrendered to the story and let the story move you. And so from that perspective, I imagine over 35 years or so of telling these stories, you've been moved in momentous ways by in terms of love and loss and death and joy. It it must be a lot to hold all that emotion and feeling. Do you find that the catharsis of giving those stories, does that feed you and fill you up? Or does it deplete you? Is it hard? Is it effortless? What is it like to hold all that energy?
0: I think we hold all that energy anyway. We live with our families we go to work, we encounter our work colleagues. We're holding that energy anyway. I don't see it as a separate thing. It's, it's different because they're folk tales. It's different because they're myths, but we're encountering and engaging with our own stories and the stories of the people in our daily lives all the time. So if you see the characters and the stories as people, And the people around you every day as people, and the people in your family as people, there's no difference. It's just that I and other storytellers who I have the deepest respect for have an ability to present what is in the the myths or the folktales in such a way that you, the listener, believe it's actually real and it's actually happening, just as it would be if you came home from work and said to your partner, Oh my gosh. Sheila came into work today and told me something terrible that happened to her on her way to work. What's the difference in terms of that human connection? Do you see what mm. I mean?
1: Mm. And we'll get into this whole idea of the mythopoetic and how these stories have survived over many, many years and what they do. There's so much to get into and I'm a little chomping at the bit for it. But I think we need to to locate our audience a little bit. And so what I'd like to do as a way of kind of locating our audience with you is I'd like to ask you this Mm -hmm. question. What is the first story that you recall absolutely capturing your imagination when you were a child?
0: It was a story called Abby Yo-Yo. Ironically, there's a video of me telling it on YouTube, a shameless plug there. But um, there was a teacher at primary school called Mrs. Williams, although we called all the teachers Miss then. So she could have been Miss or Ms. I don't know. But uh, she used to run folk club every Thursday. So we'd go for our lunch and then we'd all go and sit in her classroom. How old were you? I was about,
1: I would say, eight or and nine. this was in Manchester?
0: Yeah, here in Manchester and Birchfields Primary School, which is just down the road from where I live. Anywho, we'd run folk club and we'd all go, so we'd have our lunch and we'd all go and sit in in her classroom with her and she would sing songs to us and we'd sing them with her. And um, she always told Abby Yoya with her guitar. And uh, when I tell it, I changed it to a drum. But it's the first story that I... am conscious of anyone ever telling me and I absolutely loved it and I never forgot it so and I now tell it in schools when I go into schools and tell stories as I said it's on YouTube and um yeah it's one of my favorite stories and that's the one and did it is it did it capture my imagination long enough for me or or deeply enough for me to want to be a storyteller I don't know I don't think it did it wasn't until much much later on well, not that much later on, what 20 years later, maybe 15 years later, that I started as a storyteller. But Mrs. Williams was always there as a figure in my memory because it was such a delightful experience being in the folk club and singing, you know, train whistle blowing makes us sleepy nice. It used to make us kind of click our hands and kind of move our hands backwards and forwards while we sang this song. Rocking, rolling, riding all along the bay. I think that was a new Seekers song or the Seekers. I can't remember. But yeah, she was was there. I didn't know what it was at the time. I, I didn't know how important it was or would be to me at the time, but it stayed with me.
1: And, and was it Abby? I assume Abby's the protagonist of the story. Or was it perhaps... Abby Yo-Yo. Abby Yo-Yo. Was it Abby or was it Miss Williams? Like, what, what about the story do you recall resonating most with or feeling most connected to?
0: Her telling it, actually. So there's a, um, there's a bit in the story where... So it's a little boy whose father admonishes him not to use a zipping stick. So the father uses his zipping stick to make his life easier on the farm. So if there's something heavy he wants to move, he uses a zipping stick. If he wants to get home quicker, he uses the zipping stick on himself and he gets home quicker. So
1: it's a magic Uh, Okay, magic. I was wondering what a zipping stick is. It's it's like a magic wand? Yeah, but she never ever called it a wand.
0: She always called it the zipping stick. Mm. And what happened is that the boy, his son, was trying to get his hands on it all the time. And the father's always telling him, don't touch it, leave it alone. Anyway, one day he takes his father's zipping stick and he uses it to zip away things. So an old man's walking stick, he zips away the stick and the man falls over. He thinks it's funny. A woman with a pot full of food on her head, he zips away the pot. The food runs down her face and into her hair. He thinks that's funny. A boy drinking. And I remember Miss Williams always saying uh, a sticky, a glass of sticky lemonade. He zips away the glass and then the lemonade goes all over his face the family, the father is accosted by his neighbors. They complain about the boy. Father admonishes the boy not to use a zipping stick. Then he goes off for the day. And then Yo-Yo comes. And Yo-Yo is a giant. Mm. And I remember Miss Williams used to do this thing where Yo-Yo would pick up a, a sheep and swallow it down or pick up a cow and swallow it down. And it was just the fact that she was so demonstrative in the telling of it, I think. And then this boy sees Abiyoyo and decides that, or realizes, I should say, that how to get rid of Abiyoyo using the zipping stick. So he goes against his father's wishes. He takes the zipping stick and he tricks Abiyoyo into dancing himself uh, into a stupor. He falls down on the ground to sleep and the boy zips him away and he becomes the hero. Rather, so in a way, even though he disobeyed his father, he still becomes the hero. And I can't imagine ever that happened in my house when I was a kid. Disobeying my father would not make me a hero. (laughs) So I don't know if it was just something about that. I don't know, but I never forgot it.
1: That that sounds like a bit of a dangerous story to tell a group of primary school kids where, you know, the hero of the story is the one who disobeys. I feel like often a lot of storytelling, particularly at that age, is a bit moralizing where it's like, you know, Little Bunny Foo Foo, you know don't do the bad thing or the bad thing will happen to you but yeah. this sounds like a, a little bit more magical and unexpected in that the boy becomes the hero
0: yeah and i think yeah i'm not very i'm not very big on stories that are moralistic i think there are stories that can hold a mirror up to who we are and and what can happen if we trans if we transgress against the limits that our society or communities as asked us to honor, but that's not the same as moralizing. I think it's more a case of, well, you know, th- this is how we are here and you did that. And so, oh, as opposed to, and the moral of the story is that if you cross that line, you know, I'm not a big fan of that.
1: Yeah, there are certain stories that live in me. A lot of Greek mythology. I grew up with The Odyssey, my mother reading that to me as a child. The King of Ireland's son was the first big storytelling experience of that really. I, I, my mother read me books, but The King of Ireland's son was something where it's like this epic story that kept continuing. Just absolutely captured my imagination, and when I went back and read it later, when I was maybe a teenager, I wanted to go back to yeah. just this really like fecund magic of that time of early childhood, and i didn 't find it in the story. Yeah. I was actually kind of disappointed and and disillusioned I, I bought a copy of the King of Ireland's Son, a collection of Irish folk tales, and when I read it, it didn 't yeah. make me feel the way it made me feel as a child, and I was so I was so angry about that and it was a sort of loss of innocence in a way and I I, I wonder what that is in terms of where I was able to go with the story when I was little, like well, how I was able to really be it and imagine myself as the king of Ireland's son and be deeply invested in all these stories. And then later as a teenager when I was, when, when I was trying to be cool and, and everything was uncool and I, you know, trying, to, trying to reconnect with this sort of innocent magic and trying to almost mine it for that feeling, not find it there mm. and sort of toss the book away and say, okay, these stories aren't real. I don't know what to say about that <laughs> to be honest, because i i didn't I
0: grew up very into reading, but not not folk tales and not fairy tales and not myths. I came to them in my adulthood, and I think maybe the alchemy is in the telling in the hearing of it mm. maybe it's because your mother read it to you, and she was able to imbibe that story with, with everything that, it was in, that was needed for you to go on that in a journey that the story took you on. And maybe seeing it on the page wasn't enough. Maybe it didn't reach into you enough oh. for it to have the same effect. Because there are people who, you know, I've been at storytelling events, and you can see there's people who come to the event and they've never been to a storytelling before and they don't know what to expect. And someone brought them and they're sitting there and they're thinking, this isn't for me. And then they get hooked. And I think it's because of the quality of the telling that they get hooked. The the nature of the storyteller's willingness to immerse themselves in the story and to, to take the audience with them. And I did a show in 2012 with two musicians from Côte d'Ivoire, Raymond and Kwame Sereba. And it was my retelling of the Sundiata epic, the first of three parts of the Sundiata epic. And uh, the final show we did in Birmingham, which is in the Midlands here in England. And my sister came with a friend of hers. And there's a video, again, on, on YouTube where they interview members of the audience about their experience of seeing the show. And she said, you know, when I first start, started watching it, I thought, oh, this is not a bit of me at all. And then she said, and then it was, that was it. I was lost. I was hooked. She was this absolutely brilliant experience. And I think maybe that's what was missing. Can you get that from the page? Yes, you can get it from the page, but you have to dive in. You have to immerse yourself. You have to be prepared to immerse yourself. And when you're a teenager and you think you're cool, I reckon you're less likely to do that. Or maybe I'm wrong. I mean, there's lots of teenagers who love Lord of the Rings, aren't there? So who am I?
1: Jenna, I love how you responded to me by saying, well, I don't know what I'd say about that. And then just totally, like, just just (laughs) completely, exactly nailed it. No, I think that that's right. You know, I think that that there's something it's what we were saying at the beginning, you know, connection. And what I was doing and reading on the pages, I was like, give me back my childhood O oh book, you know, like where is the magic in these pages? And it was me mm-hmm. and I think Totally accurate in that, as an adolescent, like feeling disconnected, wanting to connect to my childhood, but not really connected to the story that was told to me and the journey that I went on. And you know, you were talking like the the voice, the sound of eating the cow and eating the sheep, and how the exhilaration, the cathartic exhilaration of like, oh, and you can see the giant making those sounds. And I think it's quite quite a wonderful. Expression of like why we storytell to each other, why we have these wonderful oral traditions where, you know, these, these people would memorize these long epics and travel and tell these stories because it really does create that connection that so many of us are really wanting, especially now in the modern world where we are, are so disconnected mm-hmm. and where stories are, you know, shiny videos and advertising and, and this sort of like it's a different thing than having a person tell you something from their heart.
0: Yeah, I would say that is true, definitely. I try not to be too judgmental about it though, you know, because, you know, I've been asked so many times do you think that the technological age will take away from storytelling? Will storytelling be lost? While there are people in this world struggling with what it means to be human, stories will never be lost. They will never disappear. They will never diminish because human beings constantly trying to figure themselves out and stories are always showing us how they're trying to figure themselves out in sometimes crisis situations sometimes flights of fancy sometimes trying to work out why they hate that person trying to figure out why their mother doesn't love them you know it's, it's all there it's all there in the stories and whilst we go through that Stories will always be relevant in that respect. And I think the trick or the wisdom is to not be bamboozled by the technological age, which is constantly saying, hey, forget about that connection thing. Look at this. And it's just like, you can't forget about the connection thing. You live with your family. How can you forget about that connection thing? You have to live with them. You have to live with people. You know, so the connection has to be there. And sometimes stories show us how it has to be there. And sometimes they show us how it is when we forget how it is to be there.
1: Has to be there, I should say. You know, this makes me think of how I reconnected with the potency of stories versus other kinds of knowledge. And I mean by I mean like folk stories oh. and myths. It's actually okay. part of how I connected with Ian McKenzie. So Ian McKenzie and I are both fans of the mythopoetic men's movement. Are you familiar with this, the mythopoetic men's movement?
0: I know Martin Shaw. Okay. That's as much that's as much as I can say about the mythopoetic men's movement. I Uh, That's why I said at the beginning, I'm very non-academic about, you know, I don't have an academic overview of the world that I'm in. I'm learning to, but at the moment I don't have one. My relationship is with the stories as I find them and tell them. And my relationship is with the people in the stories and trying to figure out what it is they're trying to show me about my place in this world. So yeah, that's my answer to your
1: question. And I think that that probably makes you a far better oracle than if you had that extra layer of well, this symbol definitely means this thing, and so that's why this symbol means mm. that thing. But mm. but briefly about the mythopoetic men's movement, and I'll be a little academic. I'm not an acad- I'm not an <laughs> academic either. <laughs> but mind. so the mythopoetic men's movement was kind of an initiative from a group of, of poets and philosophers to come up with a better understanding of masculinity that actually would really work for young men. And what they looked to was myth. And and they looked to these old stories, particularly one of the myths is the story of Iron John, which is told by Robert right. Bly. Robert Bly. Yeah. Mm. Another one is talking about the archetypes of the uh, king, warrior, magician, lover. And what's great about these stories is that they don't tell you how to be a man. They don't say, don't do this, do do that. They don't say, a man is this, a man is not that. But what they do is they tell a story and give you the opportunity to interpret it according to your modern context. And because the story has survived in so many different times and places, it carries with it a wisdom that is deeper and richer than our knowledge and our clever thinking. And when I connected to the Mythopoetic Men's Movement, I actually found that they're vehicles of incredible wisdom, like really, really potent Mm. wisdom that in a sense kind of transcends, because it's so universal and it's so timeless, these stories moving through different cultures over, over many hundreds of years, they kind of transcend my petty preoccupation with my own life. And I can see myself like, oh, yes, I'm really similar to this guy who keeps making the same mistake. And, and his is, has like frogs that turn into princesses or whatever it is, but actually I'm kind of doing the same thing. And so this deep wisdom in stories they don't tell me how to live my life, but they they kind of like interrupt where I'm at. And I'm like, oh, well, actually, I should think about this a little differently. And I'm, I'm curious if you have that experience with stories where you feel like you'll hear a great story and you'll be in maybe some stuck place in your life and a story can kind of interrupt it and kind of shake you loose and help you move forward. Have you had that experience?
0: I have had that experience very recently, but it's deeply personal, so I can't really... <laughs> going to, it's ironic. I can't really go into much detail, but it, it was a situation where I was stuck with someone. I, I, I won't go into much detail, but I was stuck with something, with my feeling about someone. And a friend of mine just happened to tell a story. And the story s- shook me. And I was like, oh my goodness. Oh my goodness. That is exactly what is happening? And it kind of took the sting out of the, what I was feeling at the time. And I was just like, oh, and it just made me relax. And it made me open, actually, because the situation was making me close, close off myself and get very defensive. And then my friend told this story, and it was just like, oh, of course, of course. And it brought more mercy to the situation. Mm. It brought more compassion to the situation. I was able to step back and really observe what was happening in a completely different way. So, yes, I have had that experience. But there was the fir- that was the first time that it happened on my own without someone having to point at it. But the first time someone used a story to point something was a story that I tell called Nyapoko, which is from Kenya, and it's about this girl who is bullied mercilessly and she goes through many transformations that the bullying and the, the hatred towards her is so potent that it's able to transform her into what these other girls want her to become. And the worst thing they change her into is a mangy old dog.
1: Oh.
0: And um, yeah, it's, 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 it's uh, horrible. It's, it, it is horrible, but they transform it into this mangy old dog. But this dog finds refuge in the house of a woman These girls, Anya Poko, have gone off to find husbands, actually, and they come to a village. They've turned her into this dog. The nine girls find husbands, and the woman whose home she takes refuge in has promised her son, who's in in the forest hunting, she says, when the girls come to choose, I'll make sure someone comes to get you so that you can be chosen. And of course, he hears all the celebrations of all the weddings, so he comes running and he says, so where's the girl who's going to choose me? And she says, oh, sorry about that. There weren't enough girls, but there is this dog and, you know, I can look after it and it can become your hunting dog. And he's so affronted that he kicks the dog and he goes off. But every day the mother goes out to the farm. She leaves her young daughter in the house and the dog transforms, takes off its skin and reveals itself to be Nia Poko. And twice the 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 daughter tries to tell her mother there's a girl in that dog, but the mother, she's so preoccupied with her own daily life, she just thinks her daughter's speaking nonsense. Finally, the girl convinces the mother because she's so outraged that her mother won't believe her, that the mother, there's kind of a ring of truth in what the girl's saying and in her sense of injustice that the mother says, okay, I'll check it out. And she stays back instead of going to the farm and she looks and she sees the girl taking off her dog skin. She goes to fetch her son and then there's a connection between the son and Niapoko. Anyway, long story short, the girls find out Nyapoko's there. They hear their own husband saying, oh, I wish you'd chosen me, and they're affronted, and they, they try and do away with her. In the end, her husband saves her, and she finally reveals the whole story of the bullying back from her village and what the girls have tried to do to her now. And the girls are sent back to their village by their husbands, and they say, you know, basically you 've left your villages, you've left your village rather as women, but you 're not because you still behave as children, so you need to go back to your village to complete your training and your initiation into womanhood, and then we 'll come and find you and the alpo lives happily and contented with her family for the rest of her days. so I remember telling that story and i 've told that story told that story for eight years, and then I was at a storytelling festival. I oh, a storytelling symposium actually at Emerson College, which is a Steiner Waldorf College in uh, England, in East Grinstead, uh, Forest Row, I should say. And after telling that story, this woman who knew me well and knew my own story, she came, she said, But you're telling your story. And I said, What? And I've been telling it for eight years. She goes, You've been telling, t- that's your story that you just told. And I was like, Oh, yeah, it is. And I've been telling it unconsciously for eight years. I, I And I was going into girls' schools and telling it about bullying, you know, as an example of bullying. And it didn't even occur to me that I was actually telling my own story. I was using it as a tool, but I hadn't realized that how close to my own experience or my own feeling about my experience it was. So it was almost like, you know, sometimes you dream. And you say, I can't remember that dream. And someone tells you and it breaks your dream. It was a little bit like that. You know, this woman kind of said, that's your story. And I was like, oh, wow. Yeah, it
1: is. Did realizing that you had been telling your own story, did that change your relationship with your own experiences? Was it a healing moment to say, oh, actually, I've... I've been telling my own story and perhaps I am living happily and contented afterwards, or perhaps there is some kind of resolution or catharsis through the fact I've been telling that. Was that your experience?
0: Uh, My experience was, I think more a sense of wonder Mm. about it, that I'd been doing that and hadn't even realized that I'd been doing that. And maybe more ownership of my own story feeling it less as a victim but was I consciously seeing it as a cathartic experience no I mean I have to be very honest with you Eamon in that I find myself (laughs) telling these stories and and feeling the impact of them and feeling and getting responses from the audience when I tell them but I also have this ability to just shut everything off afterwards so it's, it happens in that moment, in that relationship with that audience, and then it's gone. Mm. So it's not that it's an abstract thing. I know I have an ability to communicate the, the nuances of being human that are found within a story. I would say it's only in the last year or so that I've actually started thinking about it as opposed to just being with those stories as I'm telling them and knowing when it's a potent story and when it's
1: not a potent story. Mm you strike me as such an archetypal bard in this sense, you know, to, to <laughs> arrive and to just channel this, this story and have this moment and have it be totally real and be like, oh, I better go to the grocery store and, you know, pick up some... Yeah, <laughs> that's it. That's it. And I think a lot of people don't, you know...
0: I've started to embrace the, the fact that I have a lot to offer when it comes to story, and being storied and storying. but I, it's it's a very recent conscious action, It's a very recent conscious understanding that that's what I'm here to do as opposed to I can tell a story. Jan can tell a story. You know, there's a difference
1: has this this change that you're describing? has that affected the way that you teach storytelling? over this last year or two when you've made this transition? Are you, are you now bringing this into your curriculum a little bit more in, in your, this bigger view?
0: Well, I would say that before this pandemic situation, I was teaching a masterclass, but coming to everything very intuitively. So the things that would come up in the classes that I wouldn't think about before the classes it was always in response. Having not taught anything for a year now, I think I've done one workshop, one proper workshop, since the beginning of, you know, we've been locked, we're in lockdown a second time now over here in England. I've only taught one workshop, and that was a one day workshop with storytellers, uh, Hungarian storytellers. I've not had a chance to bring this new way of seeing things to the table. I'm building a a mentorship program and I'm trying to build, build it into the mentorship program. But the intuitive way of working before seemed to have had the same kind of impact. It's just I hadn't really been thinking about it. It's always been in response to whatever the storyteller in front of me was bringing to the table, as
1: it were. This is so fascinating. I feel like I'm. It's such a privilege to speak to you in this kind of threshold moment of the story of your own life. <laughs> you know, yeah, it, because it, it it seems archetypal in a way to be a bard who is suddenly becoming self aware in a new way after a pretty yeah. illustrious career. I mean, you've achieved a lot as a storyteller, and then in this very moment, in this time of global pandemic and and this global reflection introspection point that there would be this major shift really in how you understand storytelling i think that that's quite quite fascinating i feel quite privileged to speak to you in this moment as you're as oh. you're learning about it
0: yeah i think it's it's really been about recognizing that you know you make your way in the world and you can you can live so small you know you can live 10% of your life in this kind of very small and limited way and not looking up and seeing that the impact that you're having on the lives of the people around you, in the lives of your friends, of your colleagues, your family, those you hold dear and who you love, when you just see your life as a very narrow thing, you can trick yourself into thinking that the the treasures that come to you are just like these abstract things that just fall in from nowhere, you know? And this year has been about recognizing with the help of a very, very dear friend that actually it's through my own moving through the world that these things, these treasures are coming, you know, it's, it's because I've done it. I've done something. I've been something Not just, you know, living in my little corner of the world, thinking about my groceries,
1: you know? Can you name a few of these treasures that have come to you in this way you've moved through the world? What are some beautiful treasures that you can think of in this moment? Oh, I don't know.
0: Um... You flummoxed me with that question. Well, I I, I realize Uh,
1: it's a bit sort of like pointed, (laughs) but like, for example, being the curator of Shakespeare's stories, this exhibition, you know, like something like that. Um, And what I'm referring to is at the World Shakespeare Festival in 2012, I believe. Yeah. To be invited to curate in this way, would you say that's one of the treasures that at the time you thought just sort of came and now you're able to see, oh, actually I cultivated that. Would that be a good example?
0: Yeah. Yeah. And the most recent one, I have to say, was the, well, two. Gathering of stories Mm. is one, the one that Ian McKenzie is organizing. And the second one is that the Smithsonian have just made an approach. Mm. The African Caribbean Museum of Cultural History have approached me. They're doing a program called Stories on the Porch. We've yet to discuss it fully, but they've approached me as someone that they want to discuss possibly doing some storytelling and talking about my work. And I was like, the Smithsonian have heard of me. (laughs) It's like,
1: (laughs) (laughs) do you know what I mean?
0: So yeah, it's things like that. Yeah, it's things like that that I think, wow. I was saying to a friend the other day that it's almost as though, you know, you wear your glasses and you go to the opticians and they're like, no, 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 they're not the right glasses. Try these You know, and I've put these glasses on and looked at myself in the mirror and gone, wait a minute, you're Jan Blake. Do you know what I mean? Mm. About myself and other people say that about me, but it's for me to say it about me. It's for me to recognize finally, you know, and continually, continuing on, because it's not something that you just get to and it's just that, you know, you have to constantly, I think, remember your purpose and own it, you know, and not be sitting in this little corner going, well, little old me, not really. <laughs> Do you really think so? If it's over, that's got to stop, so that I can step into this space where, as a storyteller, I can really make working with other storytellers and with stories and with myself a transformational experience,
1: a consciously transformational
0: experience.
1: Well, and, and of course, so many stories are about the very transformation you've just described. I mean, like one of the most yeah. iconic stories around the world is the story of the ugly duckling, who was actually a swan the whole time. Yeah. You know, and, and we know these stories, and yet I think it's universal, no matter what we accomplish, no matter what we're doing in our lives, that we're like, it's still like, oh, little old me, oh, well, you know... I guess I'm allowed to come to the ball. <laughs> I mean, I guess. And then and yeah. then you realize the ball's being thrown in your honor and you know what yeah. whatever that is. And so I guess yeah. I guess my question from that is how then can we make the best use of stories? Because if you as a storyteller for 35 years if it's taken you so long to wake up to the stories you've been telling are actually about yourself, what's the hope for any of the rest of us to, to really crack open our own shells with the wisdom that's coming through these myths and these stories? How can we let these stories in and let them, really let them transform us?
0: To be fair, you know, without being, without dishonoring myself, I have to say I'm a bit slow on the uptake. I have been slow on the uptake, okay? So let's just get that out of the way. You know, I'm one of those people. And I go, "What really? Oh, I'm one of those. I'm getting better. But, you know, I don't think we can assume that people don't want these stories to work on them. I think people do want the stories to work on them. I think that people are open To learning about themselves through story. I think we may have, and maybe that's why I've been so slow, we have been so distracted by so many other things. The hope can come, I think, only from being exposed to the stories on a regular basis. The only place really where people are regularly exposed to tales, folk tales. And this takes me back to Mrs. Williams. It's in school. That's the only place really where there is, even if it's imposed, community. Mm. And you you have someone come into your community, sit with you and share with you stories. Once you leave the school and mainly primary school environment, that all gets dissipated. The expectation on you as a person, as a growing human, is that you should do away with all of that and get on with the real serious business of being in the world and not realizing that the serious business of being in the world is being shown to you in stories. Mm. So more more opportunities to hear stories. I don't think it's about, you know craving them, craving the wisdom of the story, craving the knowledge of the story. I think it's about being immersed in them and letting them do their work upon you. You know, I think that is how the only way that it's ever worked and can work. And I understand that people go out of their way to seek the wisdom in stories but I also believe that you're supposed to marinate in them. You're supposed to sit in them. Maybe I was meant to sit with my story for eight years before I realized it was my story. Maybe I'm not slow on the uptake, you know, this thing about slowly coming to an understanding of something, you know, in one of my, um, talks, I said on YouTube, I said that, um, and again, this is the thing. I say all these things and I forgot I've said them. And then I watch myself and I go, oh my God, you do know what you're talking about. <laughs> but in the moment, <laughs> I don't even realize what I'm saying. But one of the things I did say is that, you know, I tell a story or any storyteller tells a story and whatever piece of that story is needed for your own medicine will enter your bloodstream. It's like a shard of a glass or ice, mm. You know, whatever it is, it enters your bloodstream and it, it stays there. It stays there until it comes into being within your life. And you don't know why it's going to come into being within your life. Can you force that to happen? I don't think so. Can you impose your will on that? No, I don't think you can. I think the story has to work upon you. I did a storytelling once at a teacher's uh, um, event and uh, they'd done lots of things in the day of the conference. And in the evening, they just wanted some stories. And they, they said, we don't just want stories for children. We want stories for us. So I said, okay. And I told this story. It's a dilemma tale. And uh, it's quite in your face, this dilemma tale. It's about a chief's son who marries a woman And on the day of his marriage, in the evening, when he comes to consummate the wedding, he rides, gallops towards the house, and he jumps off his horse. He loves his horse. It's a grey mare. And he wraps his arms around the the horse's neck. And he says, oh, my grey mare, my grey mare. I love this mare more than any woman. And his wife's waiting inside. When she hears him say that, she says, if you love your horse more than you love me, then before you can enter this house and before you can enter me you better get rid of that horse kill that horse and he says i will never kill my horse and she says then when you'll never sleep with me you'll never consummate this this marriage and it becomes a to and fro backward and forward battle between them and he's determined to make her understand that his horse is important to him and she's determined to make him understand that until he gets rid of that horse which she sees now as a reflection of shame upon her as a woman That nothing will happen. Anyway, long story short, someone finds out the story goes from the village to the towns, towns to the city. And a prince hears about it. And he decides to come and take advantage. He's a despoiler of young women. He decides to come and take advantage. And he follows the story from the city to the towns, from the towns to the village, till he comes to their village. He seeks out the woman, finds out who it is, you know, pretends that he you know that he really uh, admires the husband of this woman and he wants to know who he is, what does he look like? How will I recognize him and they talk about how he dresses? and he goes to the tailor, has himself a suit made in the same uh, fashion as the husband. He waits until the evening and uh, he hears the husband gallop towards the house, make his declaration, and um, hears the wife you know, admonish and rebuff him. The husband goes off, leaving the, the horse as he does, as like a thorn in her foot, he ties the horse up outside the house. So in the morning, she has to see it when she comes out. The This prince then, seeing this, the husband leave, comes forwards and declares, my grey mare, my grey mare. And she says, I've told you, I don't know why you're back here, I've told you, if you want to sleep with me, kill the horse. And he draws his sword and he kills the horse immediately. And because it's under cover of darkness, She says, come in and they make love. And then in the morning he leaves and then the real husband comes, sees his horse dead and he goes mad. And she says, I don't understand. What's the matter? You killed it last night. Why should you complain now? Come back to bed. And he says, I've never been in your bed. And then she realizes that she's been tricked. And then she goes in pursuit of the man who tricked her. I
1: won't tell you the ending. But anyway, wait, wait,
0: wait, wait. I told wait, this you. You won't tell. It. Wait, no, no, no. It's a dilemma story. But I want the
1: dilemma story. Wait is, wait, is there an ending that we're missing out on?
0: There is an ending in that she takes her revenge, but that's why I don't want to go into my, too many details because I don't want to give you the whole story right now. She takes her revenge. And then there's a dilemma for the audience to answer. Who suffered the most? Ah. Did the prince suffer? Did the husband suffer? Did she suffer? Anyway, that's the, that's the dilemma, okay? I told this story at this teacher's conference, and this woman was sitting, I saw this woman sitting there throughout the whole session, and she was ashen. And I thought, oh, no, she's really offended. She's really offended by this story. Because the revenge is not a pretty revenge, yeah? Let's say that. I don't want to offend the men, but it's not a pretty revenge. I, I
1: think I get, I think and, I get um, what it might be.
0: <laughs> yeah, exactly. And uh, and I was, and she was ashen. I thought, oh my, she's offended by the story. I feel really bad. And I didn't really feel bad. I was just conscious of her. I was watching her. Because when you're telling, you're telling the story, but you're also conscious of the audience and the energy that they're giving back to you. So I just called it. I always do. When it feels like that, I, would, I say, are you okay? You know, you weren't offended by the story. And she went, no, no, it wasn't that. I said, what was it? She said, I berate my husband every day because he loves sport. And, he, and he, likes to watch, he likes to watch sport all the time. He loves rugby and it drives me insane. You know, and I berate him every day and it's been the source of so much problems between us. And I've just realized listening to that story, that I'm unreasonable. It's an unreasonable request for him not to love his sport. Why shouldn't he love his sport? And she was just sitting there, realizing her own life through this story from Sierra Leone. No, Liberia, you know, totally different environment, totally different characters, but the essence of the the dynamic between the husband and the wife really spoke to her in that moment. It was fascinating. And and that's happened a lot when I've told stories that people come up to me at the end and go, oh my God, you just made me realize,
1: you know, well I think the stories are so disarming because you get entranced in them. Like just now you were telling that story and I I, I must share with you I was very upset that you weren't going to finish it. I was like wait wait you can't <laughs> I'm I'm here for the story. Like I've kind of I forgot the setup. <laughs> I forgot why you'd started telling the story. I was just like I want to know what happened. We get we get so entranced in it, we're living it and it and I think that a good story Flows in such a way; it has sort of recurring themes. You know, he says again, "My horse, my horse, or my mare, my mare." You know, yeah. it, it it brings us yeah. back almost like the chorus to a song. You know, we kind of come back, and mm. we're getting closer, and we're getting closer, and then all of a sudden, the story ends, and you're like, "Oh, you know." Whereas if whereas if someone <laughs> had said, you know, if you berate your husband about sport, then. You know he's going to leave you. You shouldn't do that. Here's why you shouldn't. Here's some research. You know here's all the you know all the research. And in a sense, these myths and these stories are 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 kind of like research throughout generations. The way they move yeah. through these different generations and and have changed a little bit and and how they're memorized and then told. There are these. They, I just love this like the vehicle of wisdom that you then sort of immerse yourself in. So
0: yeah, and you just you just sink in. And I I think that you have to let it do its work. You just have to let them do their work. The best one, though, was I did TEDx in Manchester.
1: I've watched this, and I watched this. Right, so you saw that story. Yeah, the fisherman
0: of the fisherman. Yeah. Right. So after I told that story, about two days later, I got a message on Twitter. Can you follow me? Because I can't send you a direct message till you follow me. I can't remember the name of the person. So I said, okay, and I kind of followed her. She sent me a message. She went, I just want you to know what happened after listening to you tell that story. She said my ex was in the audience and we split up. I don't know how long ago they'd split up, but they'd split up. And she said, I'm not saying that you should buy a hat. They have a saying in England, if there's gonna be a wedding, you buy a hat. She said, I'm not saying you should buy a hat, but we both listened to your story and we both found each other afterwards. And decided to try again. Wow! Oh. But it was fascinating to me. It's absolutely fascinating it's because of that story that they decided. You know, life's too short.
1: Well, I'm I'm going through <laughs> my own life. Is is a I'm I'm uh, I'm, I'm in a bit of a heartbreak <laughs> at the moment. Oh, I'm sorry. Oh, it's, you know, it's all right, and it's it's happening as it. Should be and and I was actually watching that video um, of you telling that story where he just cast the net over and over and I love the way mm. you tell the story where you actually fade out. I've never actually heard a storyteller mm. fade out the end of their story, but you were like he cast the net and it, your voice totally gets quieter. He cast that he cast the net and just that mm. fade out of him like just trying to find her again. Yeah, I mean, I was like, uh, <laughs> like I loved it, but I, and I'm not sure what kind of work it will necessarily do on me. But I, um... that story is, is it fascinating? When
0: I heard a storyteller called Vagingo Benkian tell it, so it's an Armenian story, and I, I fell in love with it immediately, and luckily she's happy for me to tell it. It's just so, it's so amazing. But the reason I called it a story of love, loss, and hope. Because I realised, well, I don't know if that's what I believe anyway, that him casting that net isn't just a hopeless. It's a it's an act of hope. Mm -hmm. It's Mm -hmm. not just that oh you know frantically oh I need my wife I need my wife. He really believes that he will find her. He really believes that, and that keeps him there. Keeps him alive. It keeps him active. It keeps him in connection with his own self and with the world is this, I will find her as opposed to, you know, this, this futile act of casting this net again and again and again and again. And I've, people have said to me, you know, such a depressing story. And I'm like, I don't think it's depressing. I don't think it's depressing at all. I think the fact that he stands there every day, he goes out there and he does not give up. To me, I'm not trying to say that's what you should do, by the way. I'm just saying that's why I love the story. I love all the events within the story, but I love the fact that he's he stands firm in what he believes. And we can judge it and say that's futile. But how many times in your life has someone said to you, oh, I wouldn't do that if I were you? And you've gone, all right, and then regretted it later. Or said, no, actually, I'm going to do that. I believe in that and I'm going to do it. And that's what I love about it. That's what that story offers me anyway.
1: Well, what I'm going to do is I'm going to make a note in the introduction to invite our listeners to check out that story before... Before the conversation, because I, I, I watched that before okay. this conversation. So if you, dear listener, have followed the prompt, you know the story we're talking about. And if not, then you can check it out. It's the TEDx, um, and it's 2016 TEDx Manchester, where you delivered that, that, that tale. That's true. Okay, so, That's right. so I have a personal question around storytelling, um, okay. and I wonder if I will pull it off or not. We'll see. The question is about whether one can become lost in a story. So when I was a little boy, my mother read The Odyssey to me. And The Odyssey is deeply imbued in my very being. The idea of this ongoing quest, this heroic ongoing quest, this many-minded Odysseus told over and over again, he's the greatest hero of Troy. He's the one who, the horse is his idea, and then he gets lost on this long journey home. And when I was young, I was captivated by this journey home, where, where he, there's the mm-hmm. cyclops, and then there's the sirens, and there's the land of the lotus eaters. And I have found my life to be very similar to this odyssey. All of my adventures are sort of, I'm trying to get somewhere with them, you know, whether it's drinking ayahuasca or going to Burning Man. It's like, there's a coming home that's just over the next adventure, And it has occurred to me recently that perhaps I've gotten stuck in a story and that I'm actually not able to achieve a sense of peace and well-being because I'm lost in this never-ending quest that was kind of patterned into my mind by hearing this story over and over again as a child. And so I've thought a lot about this recently, over the past year or two. And in fact, my former partner, was the first person to point this out to me where where she said, you know, I think that maybe you've gotten stuck in a story. You're constantly having a hero's journey but it doesn't seem like it's actually giving you what you're looking for. It seems like the way we've talked about these stories is that they're always good in a sense, the way I feel we've discussed them. They always, in a sense, they're Mm. like medicine. We spoke of like the icicle that gets under the skin and you sort of, it it transforms you. You awaken and say, oh, you know, I was the bullied girl or, you know, you awaken in these various ways. But I wonder, is it possible to become captured by a myth or a story in a way that I've described and actually have it become a prison for you? Do you think that that's possible? Do you think, and, and I wonder what maybe the solution could be. Wow, am, am I the right person to ask this question? I don't know.
0: And the, the character that comes to mind, springs to mind, is Walter Mitty for some reason. Oh, yes,
1: yes. Can you, can you tell us, the audience, who Walter Mitty is? So,
0: Walter Mitty is, I guess you could call him a fantasist someone who lives in his own imagination and finds it really difficult to be in the real world. But some of the qualities of living in his own imagination make him fearless to a certain extent, I would say. That's how I would describe Walter Mitty. And that he's constantly walking a tightrope between what we call reality and his own dreamings of the world. Is that how you would? Uh,
1: yeah, yeah, it? and and I'll just note that I'm a big fan of the old Danny Kay version of the Secret Life of Walter Mitty. Ah. So the Secret Life of Walter Mitty is the I think I don't know if it was a book before it was a movie, but it was a 1950s movie starring Danny Kay, and then they recently did a remake with Ben Stiller that I've refused to watch because oh, I man. grew up on the Danny Kay one. <laughs> but but I will say that I have some major Walt- Walter Mitty aspects to me of living in a fantasy. And, okay. and even when I make it real, I'm still in the fantasy version of it while it's happening. So right. I think you hit the nail on the head with that particular character.
0: Yeah, I think the thing is that the most important thing to me about Odysseus was that he did want to go home. He did want to go home. And, and he did get home. And he, even when he got home, he still had to fight for his right to be home and to have his life the way he wanted it. But he was driven constantly. He, the difference, I think, maybe between you and he is that you're driven by the adventure and he was driven by the desire to get home. Mm. And perhaps being stuck in the story or being stuck in the myth is when you somehow don't want to face the end of the journey. It's not the story. The story is itself. The story does what it does. It's how you, how the story works upon you. And at some point, The challenge is to accept that the home that you want, the home that you're avoiding yourself, there's nothing wrong with it. There's nothing to avoid.
1: (sighs) You know, I grew up with this idea that a life well lived is an epic adventure, but I think that there is a kind of displacement of that for me where it's like the epic adventure was somehow far away and distant than my actual lived experience and that my lived experience wasn't epic. It wasn't an adventure. That I, in and of myself, was sort of plain and and not enough, you know, there's a not enoughness to it. But if I travel the world yeah. and if I do the hardest things and if every and, I've, and if I post all about it on social media, so people are reading my story as it happens in real time and they're following me and it, they're making me real. You know, if I live a story, mm. then the readers of my story can make me real. But then, of course, I've abdicated being the audience of my own life, being the audience that matters most of my own life. And um, mm. I wonder if you listening, if any of you at home or driving your car or exercising, whoever you're, wherever you're listening to this, have had an experience like that of wanting to be bigger and grander and more epic and famous and all of these things, as if once you got there, that you would feel okay. Cause I think that that's where, I think, I think that's where it happens.
0: I think the thing is that you never, if it's, if it's based on the outside version, the, the outer world, you never get there because you're never satisfied, actually. And to be at peace with the mundane, the everyday, and to find ritual and meaning in the everyday. Like my big thing at the moment, two big things, is making my bed and lighting... A candle and incense to my ancestors. So I've got an altar there with for my parents, and also on that altar I've got things that are meaningful. A friend of mine took her own life two years ago. There's some the gifts she gave me. They're on the altar. The gift of some gin that a dear friend gave me. That's on the altar. You know, there, there's things there that are meaningful to me as well as my parents' photographs and you know African carvings to represent ancestors and every morning I light a candle and I light some frankincense and myrrh and every morning I make my bed and making my bed I'm taking to an art you know it's like how my bed is made how my pillows look because where I sit talking to you now is in my bedroom and So if I look over at my bed, it's got to look beautiful because it's in my working environment. So this ritual of getting up in the morning, like in the dark with just one candle burning at my parents' altar and making the bed and making sure that it's smooth and making sure that it looks beautiful, that has become a very important thing to do and has become more than making my bed. It's become a ritual almost. No, it's not almost, it is a ritual. And um, I wouldn't say that I tried to find a sense of being outside of myself, but my work took me away from home a lot. So to be at peace with these mundane rituals, to be at peace with just making my bed, making my breakfast, making my dinner, all these things that I very rarely had an opportunity to get into. When I was a mom, when I was a young mom, you have to because, you know, you've got to keep your kids' routine in, in place and all this kind of stuff. But for me, for myself, again, it's through this last year that I've had the time and the space to look at and to be at peace with my daily mundane rituals what time i get up what time i go to bed all of these things you know and to find joy and beauty and purpose in just that i love it
1: Mm, that's so beautiful and i wonder if there's maybe some connection between your peace with the daily experience and this new awakening that you've had to yourself as a storyteller because it sounds like they're occurring during the same period of time, right? You said this over this past year, you've kind of awakened to a different understanding of yourself as a storyteller while at the same time, it seems like your life has kind of slowed down with less travel, with less sort of, you know, maybe less adventure, but then a kind of deeper understanding of your craft and of what you're giving to the world. I wonder, I, I imagine those two might be connected in some way. I
0: think they are. And I think also the lighting of the candle mm. to my, and I'm being conscious of ancestors being more conscious then being more present in my daily life. You know, I think that too has helped kind of, you know, like that, that needle on your compass. I feel like, you know, my needle is North true North.
1: Are there any stories in your repertoire or that you've experienced that you feel most connect you with your ancestors?
0: Off the top of my head, honestly, I can't say I can't say that there is really there's stories about them, there's stories about my grandparents and I guess there's one story I that I found in a book by Zora Neale Hurston. I actually heard it from a storyteller called Pom Clayton in my f- at my first ever storytelling festival. Uh, Which festival was that? F- it's called Beyond the Border Storytelling Festival, and this was in 1994. And um, I'd been to a festival before, Beyond the Border, International Storytelling Festival, but it wasn't an outdoor festival. I'd never been to an outdoor festival with... Tents and camping, and all this kind of stuff. And I heard Pom tell this story, and then I found it in a book of Mules and Men by Zora Neale Hurston. And it's a story, when Pom told it, she said it was called Keys to the Devil's Kitchen. And it's a story about man and woman and how everything is fine, everything is equal, they're equal in all things strength, wits, all abilities they're equal, but man gets frustrated because he can't win a fight and he can't tell a better joke and he can't tell a better story and he can't cook a better meal. And he's had enough of, of everything being equal. He wants something for himself. So he goes up to heaven. He walks to the end of the earth and the golden a golden rope ladder comes down. He climbs golden rope ladder. And St. Peter says, what are you doing here? You're, you're not in the book. And he says, no, I know, but I really need to see God. And he says, go on. And God goes in. He says, oh, man, I saw you come in. What do you want? And he says, it's not fair. He goes, it's woman. And God says, what did woman do? And he says, oh, well, she she, she wins everything. You know, she, she won't let me win anything. She won't let me win at fighting. She won't let me win at anything. You know, I've had enough. And God says, well, what do you want me to do about it? And he says, just give me an ounce more strength. Just an ounce. And God laughs. He throws back his head and he laughs at man. And he says, oh man, you are funny. He says, all right, here, announce the strength, use it wisely. And he says, oh, I will. And he goes back down, woman's asleep in her bed. And man says, wake up. And she says, you know, get off. And he says, wake up and go and make me something to eat. She says, don't be I don't make you something to eat. That's not how this works. We cook with each other and we eat together. And he says, no, from today's different, make me something to eat. And she says, no. And he says, "Eat, make me something to eat or I'll beat you in an inch of your life. And she says, oh, you want to fight? Why didn't you say so? Because they fight all the time, but then they always make love and it's fine. She says, you want to fight? That's fine. Let's fight. So she jumps out of her bed and for the first time ever, man pins her to the ground. And she says, what's this? And he says, I went to see God. He says, that's right. I went to see God. God gave me an ounce more strength. So from this day forwards, you will do my bidding. And he slaps her just so she understands. Now, the slapping part, I'm going to pause. My mum told me that when she was young, there was a man who lived uh, up in the hills in Jamaica where my mum was raised. And he was always beating his wife. And one day, my grandmother had enough of it. So she she got all the children together and they all walked up the hill together. And my grandmother went in the house and found this man beating his wife. And my grandmother knocked him to the ground, jumped up and down on him. My grandmother was a very tiny woman, but she jumped up and down on this guy and said, if you don't stop beating your wife, I'm going to come back up here again. Do I make myself clear? And he was like, yeah, okay. And she was like, fine. And then she left and that was it. We never heard the woman cry out again. So whenever I tell that story that I was just telling you, I think of my grandmother jumping up and down on this guy. Anyway, do you want me to tell you the rest of the story? Yes, I most definitely do. I know you'll hate me if I do <laughs> I won't hate
1: you, but I, you know, I, I'm, so, I'm in. I'm bought in. So the slap okay, happens.
0: So the slap, and she says, all right, all right, all right. Don't hurt me. Let me get up and I'll make you something to eat. So he gets up and she gets up. And she says, you'll have to catch me first. And she runs and she runs to the end of the earth. She's so angry, she climbs the golden rope ladder two rungs at a time. And she kicks open the pearly gates. And so Peter's like, what? And she says, I want to see God. And he says, he's in there. And she pushes her and she goes in and she says, God. And God says, hi, hi, woman. And she says, don't hi, woman, me. How could you do that? You made us equal in all things. Equal. And now man comes and tells me that he's got an ounce more strength and he's going to call the shots from now on. And God says, well, that's the way it is. You know, man asks and I provide. And she says, well, take, take his strength away. And he says, I can't, I've given what I give. I don't take. So she says, well, what am I going to do? She says, make me 10 times stronger. And he says, I can make you 10 times stronger. And man will be 10 times stronger plus an ounce. That's just the way it is now. And she says, we'll see about that. She turns and she goes down the golden rope ladder. And then she goes down, 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 down into the fiery pits of hell. And there's Beelzebub, the old Nick sitting on his flaming red throne, laughing his head off. And a woman kicks out the, all, the, all the little imps that are jumping up and down with their tridents. She kicks them out of the way and she goes in and she says, did you see what God did? And the devil says, yeah, I, I didn't realize he had such a sense of humor. That was hilarious. And she says, you've got to help me. And he says, I can't. He says, look, the last time I tangled with him, I ended up down here. So I can't directly get involved. But what I would suggest is you go back up. And you'll, you know, bow, scrape, do whatever you have to do. And as you're bowing and scraping, you'll notice that God wears a sash around his waist. And attached to that sash are three keys, keys to the kitchen, the bedroom, and the next generation. You have those keys. It doesn't matter how strong man is. You're golden. So she says, okay. And she goes back up and she kind of presents herself to St. Peter. And she says, can I see God? And St. Peter's like, yeah, just, just don't hurt me. And she pushes open the door. And she's like, hi, God. And God says, hello, woman. She goes, can I, can I come in? And he says, of course you can come in. And she's, I don't know what happened to me before. I forgot myself. I forgot who I was. I forgot who you were. I'm so sorry. She says, "Um, you know, it doesn't matter about the strength, but uh, could I have those keys? God looks down at the keys He looks at woman and he laughs, he laughs. And he says, oh, take them. I want to see what you do with them. Use them wisely. She says, oh, don't you worry. I will. And she goes down. And she locks the key to the bedroom. She locks the key to the kitchen. And she locks the key to the next generation. And she waits. And man's been out hunting for something. He comes. She sits on the stoop outside the house. Behind her, there's a little uh, stand with a bowl of water on. There's the bedroom. And there to the left is the kitchen. She's sitting on the stoop. Man comes and he throws down something that he's killed. And he says, cook it. And she says, no. And he says, didn't you hear what I said? Cook it. She says, no, I'm not going to cook that. And he says, I told you I've got the strength. She says, do your worst. Beat me, kill me dead. I don't care. I'm not cooking that. And he slaps her and she just sits there. And he says, well, I'll cook it then. She says, all right. There's the kitchen. He tries the kitchen door. He says, the kitchen door's locked. She says, yeah, that's right. That's right. I went to see God. You're not the only one who can go and see God. I went to see God and God gave me the keys to the kitchen and the kitchen stays locked until I decide to open it. And he's so frustrated, he stomps off. Anyway, later on that evening, he comes back, kitchen door still locked and they always make up by making love. So he kind of goes towards the bedroom door and he tries the bedroom door. The bedroom door's locked. He says, woman, she says, yes. He said, the bedroom door's locked. She says, that's right. God gave me the key to the bedroom door and it stays locked until I decide to open it. And he can't believe what's happening. His whole world is falling apart. And he throws himself down on the stoop and he goes to sleep. In the morning, he hears the click of the bedroom door and woman comes out of the bedroom and she's got that morning smell, that nice musty smell that he loves. And uh, she lowers her blouse to wash herself and man kind of observes woman and yes, rubs his hands together, you know, and he makes his approach, he sidles up behind the woman, he wraps his arms and cups her breasts. And he's just about, she says, take your hands off me. And she, he says, no, this is too much. You've never refused that. And she says, yeah, well, I went to see God. God gave me the key to the next generation and the door to the next generation stays locked until I open it. And he says, that's it. He splashes cold water on his face. He runs to the end of the world, up the golden rope ladder. St. Peter says, just go in. (laughs) And he goes in and God says, you again. He says, what, what do you want? And he says, it's woman. He says, what now? What? And he says, well, she's got the keys to the kitchen, the, the, the bedroom and the next generation. And God says, come here, come here. And he calls man to him and he says, look down there. He says, what do you see? And man says, the whole of creation, the whole of creation, says God. And who did I make the whole of creation for? Did I make it for me? He says, no. He says, who did I make it for? He says, me and woman. Yes, you and woman, he says. And what do you do? You come up here. Woman won't let me win anything. Man's got too much strength. I've had enough. He says, I've had enough of the both of you. He says, you take your strength and you get back down there and you tell your woman to use those keys wisely. And I don't want to see either one of you back here again until your allotted time. Do I make myself clear? Thunder, lightning. And man says, yes. And he says, now get out of here and go and make the life that I made you for. And so man climbs down the golden rope ladder and he goes really slowly. He walks really, really slowly until he gets to the house woman sitting on the stoop, shelling peas into a bowl. And man stands there and looks at her. She looks at him. She gives him one of her dirty looks and he doesn't know what to do. And she's shelling her peas into the bowl. And then finally he says, woman, she says, yes. And he said, I was wondering if I could do something to her. She says, what are you trying to say? And he says, I was wondering if there's anything I can do to her. She says, spit it out, man. What are you trying to say? And he says, all right. I was wondering if there's anything I could do to help you. She says, you want to help me? And he says, I, th- I think I do. She says, you could help me shell these peas. So they sit next to each other. in that awkward silence, shelling peas. The woman says, I'm, I'm going to open the door to the kitchen. Do you want to come and help me cook? And he says, yeah. So click. She opens the door to the kitchen. A man and woman, they cook together. There's not much conversation. It's awkward. They cook together, they eat together, and then man goes off to do what he has to do, woman goes off to do what she has to do. And that evening, she's in the bed, and she hears a scratching on the door. She hears, woman, he says, yes. He says, uh, it's a bit cold out here. I, I was wondering if you'd, if you'd open the door to the, to the bedroom. And so he hears her feet padding on the floor, and click, she opens the door to the bedroom. She gets back into the bed and man stands there leaning against the side of the bed and looking at her and there's that smell, that beautiful musty smell that he loves on her. And he says, woman, she says, yes. He says, I know it's a bit you know, presumptuous of me given what's passed between us today, but it's so cold. Could I get into the bed? And she says, yes, but no funny business. And he says, of course, of course not. Gets into bed next to her and they lie there side by side and she feels his warm arms, his strong muscles against her arm. And he can still smell that beautiful musty smell of hers that he likes. And she finds herself sidling towards him and he finds himself sidling towards her and they look at each other awkwardly. And And then he says, woman, and she says, yes. And he says, uh, you've opened the door to the kitchen. She says, yes. He says, you opened the door to the bedroom. She says, yes. And he says, I, I wonder if Possibly you'd consider opening the door to the next generation. She says, yes, and she opens the door to the next generation. And man and woman do what they always do. They make up by making love. And sometimes in the coming months, man uses his strength inappropriately, and sometimes woman uses her keys inappropriately. But they, eventually they come to an equilibrium. And one day they're sitting together together under a tree looking at the work that they've done on the field that they've been working on and the shoots coming up out of the, the furrows that the plows made. They're lying in each other's arms eating. And man says, woman. And she says, yes, my man, the man that God gave me, the man that I love. And he said, I've been wondering. He says, I have not used my strength against you for quite some time. And she says, no, you haven't. She said, you use your strength to protect me and I'm grateful. And he says, and and your keys, you you haven't used your keys against me for a while. And she says, no, I haven't. I haven't used them against you. I use them for us both. And he says, and I'm grateful. And he says, but I was thinking, you know, as I have got an ounce more strength and as I am the protector, don't you think it would be best if you let me look after your keys? (laughs) And she's just about to take them off when the devil pops up. And he says, what are you doing? I told you, you keep the keys. You'll be stronger than anything. The devil disappears again. And the woman says, you know, man, you do use your strength to protect me. And I'm grateful. But these are my keys. I think I'll keep them. And since that day, man and woman have been dancing the dance and trying to find their equilibrium. And I hope that you who are listening out
1: there will find yours. Jan, you are a delightful storyteller. <laughs> oh, thank you. <laughs> I'm so, I'm, thank you very much. I'm so happy we got a nice, good, deep one at the end there. This, this interview has been peppered with all of these wonderful stories, and then we got a really good one. And I'm not going to say whether or not that story affected my perspectives. <laughs>
0: <laughs> <laughs>
1: oh. oh, man.
0: I just love it. I just love it. And so I guess in answer to your question, that really long-winded answer to your question is that one makes me think of uh particularly my mom, my grandmother. And uh, I guess to a certain extent my dad as well, you know, because they dance that dance as most of our parents have to.
1: As as yeah. as we as we all do in some way or another, that that dance of like, oh, I guess now I'll I'll he- I'll, he- I'll help I'll <laughs> help. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh. Yeah. <sighs> yeah. Well, Jan, this has been such a lovely conversation today. I'm, I'm so, I'm really oh, properly okay. delighted by by this whole experience. Oh, thank you, um, thank you. And and you. and I, it's a pleasure. I can see first. I mean, I'm. I in this moment, I've been an audience of one for your storytelling. But of course, out in the podcasting world, there'll be others who are driving, laughing, doing some gardening or whatever, and 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 breaking <laughs> out in laughter listening to you speak. So. Jan, I, I want to give a little shout out to this gathering of stories that is coming up. What is the date of the gathering of stories?
0: Yeah, it's over the 6th and the 7th of February. I'll be telling on the 7th of February, but there'll be delightful people throughout the whole weekend. And I very, feel very blessed and honored to be part of it, to be honest. So I'm very grateful to Ian McKenzie for that. And I'm very grateful to Tad Hargrave for pointing Ian McKenzie in my direction.
1: And this is going to be, the. I spoke to Ian and this is going to be the first of an annual event and that this will be around providing new insight and perspectives for tending the soul of the masculine. And that's something that um, Ian -hmm. and I have collaborated on. His podcast is called The Mythic Masculine and you have an episode of The Mythic Masculine that's going to be coming out in the next week or two as well. So so, so you'll be able to hear, hear more of Jan on The Mythic Masculine podcast and at the gathering of stories and I'll have a in the show notes for both of those. And how else can people connect with you and follow your work? And maybe if some storytellers out there wanted to connect around mentorship or masterclasses, how can people connect with you?
0: People can connect with me through the contacts page. So there's two websites. There's one that is being kind of built, which is acquiastorytelling.com. That's really at the moment only focused towards uh, storytelling and education and the corporate sector. But JanBlakeStories.co.uk—that's my website—and you can contact me through the contacts page on there. You can contact me at on Facebook, Jan Blake Stories, the Acquia Storytelling Project. Spell A K U A Storytelling Project. You can contact me on Instagram and at JanStoriesUK. I don't really use Twitter that much. I kind of, I don't have the patience for it. So Facebook, Instagram, my web page. And also you could contact me by email at com.
1: They're the best ways to contact me. And we will have all of those links in the show notes. And Jen, thanks for coming on the show. Thank you for weaving these stories for us and helping us understand what it means to be human. I feel like even in this 90-minute conversation, I have gone through a number of different emotions and understandings and and above all, a a really wonderful feeling of delight in, in just the incredible... Proficiency and skill of your craft. You're a very good storyteller, Jan. Thank you for doing that on this show. Thank you,
0: Eamon. Thanks for having me. I'm really grateful. Thank you. And thanks for listening out there.